The kids like Deep Purple. I'm sure they'll love late period <laughs> Louis Armstrong. <laughs> Stick em up, punks. It's time for another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and general complainers get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums. You must hear before you die. We're going to do a couple of deep dives on some songs, give you background on the artist, and at the end, vote and tell you whether or not you really need to listen to this album before you die. As some of you might have guessed from our rather aggressive intro, we are going to be talking about an album this week that I think we're going to have some mixed opinions on. (laughs) It is (laughs) the album Come Find Yourself by the band Fun Lovin' Criminals. Before we get into our deep dives and our tweet-length reviews, we're going to play you a little snippet of the intro track on this album called Fun Lovin' Criminal. Not fun-loving criminals, as the band is called, but fun-loving criminal. So here you go. Intro track. Get your head in the mindset of 1996 when you hear this one. I think you guys have an idea of what we're in for this week. By way of introduction, I am going to throw it around the room to our cast of characters here and have them give their tweet-length reviews. I'm going to throw it first to Marty. What's up, you freaks? (laughs) Try and imagine this. A lamer version of the band 311. No way, you might say to yourself. That's impossible. I'm just going to leave this here and you can decide for yourself. I got so much flavor that I'll always leave you chewing. I got so many styles, you'll be thinking I'm from the UN. I broke into the White House and never got caught, and I'd be Neil Armstrong if I was an astronaut. I promise you my 12-year-old nephew did not write that. Why are you, why are you name-checking the best lyrics on the album, man? Marty, right off the top. You got to save the gold for later. <laughs> all righty thank you for that i'm gonna throw it next over to rob thanks tom this is rob here and i just want to say thank god someone finally decided to make art from the perspective of native new york wannabe alpha gangsters who express nothing but confidence despite a preponderance of evidence that they are in fact talentless pieces of shit that had really been missing from my understanding of the American landscape. <laughs> all right. All right. I think I can tell where this episode is going to go. I have a very short, very pithy tweet length review. This is Tom here. My tweet length review is just apartment of discomfort because they're a down market house of pain. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. 
All righty. So, yes, we are diving into the 1996, February 20th, 1996 release, to be exact, of the Fun Loving Criminals debut album, Come Find Yourself, released on EMI Records. Let's give you a little bit of background on this band of ne'er-do-wells. They are a three-piece with Huey Morgan is the lyricist and guitarist. We have Brian Fast Leister, who does the samples, bass, harmonica, keyboards, and trumpet, and Steve Borgovini, who is drums, I assume. I say I assume because this is one of the few times this has ever happened. There's not even a Wikipedia article of this member. That's how little of an impact these guys had in the world. So first of all, what the fuck, Robert Dimery? Why are we listening to this this week? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, three-piece, as Rob mentioned, they were all New York City natives, in case that did not come across in the lyrics for this album. Huey, in particular, was kind of a troubled youth. He got into a bunch of trouble, was sort of a hooligan. Apparently, in his late teens, got arrested for selling cocaine while driving a stolen car. And was then given the option, according to him, this is the legend behind the band, he was given the option to either go to jail or join the Marines. And so he joined the Marines and he was shipped off to Iraq. But not the Iraq that we're thinking of where we actually invaded Iraq. He was in Operation Desert Storm, the first version of Iraq. And apparently this had a huge impact on him. He came back very scarred and very uh, cynical about the entire system. And listen, I get it. All war is hell. But the Persian Gulf, the, the Operation Desert Storm, was famous for the fact that we basically kicked the living shit out of the Iraqis with, like, missiles and helicopters and shit like that. And the the actual grunts on the front line saw very little action, almost no action at all. In fact, famously, there were 96 casualties. 96 officers were, were killed. U.S. officers were killed during the Iraq War. And then there were 105 non-combat-related deaths, which that's like... Car accidents, overdoses, drunken fights that turned into somebody getting killed. Somebody accidentally blows himself up with a grenade. So more people killed themselves by fucking up during that war than actually got killed in combat. Again, I'm not trying to disparage anybody who served. I know it's it's got to be really tough. But this guy sort of talked about it like it was his own personal Vietnam. And I just find that to be a little fucking hard to believe that uh, it really scarred him all that much. I can see you guys are like, I don't want to comment on this whatsoever. I'm not walking in that fucking minefield. You're probably more scarred from having to actually, like, spend some time learning about this guy than he was in the war. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, this seemed like, on many occasions, that this guy really took this stuff seriously. And, like, these lyrics had, like, a deep personal meaning to him. And, like, great, it's all good and well that they had a deep personal meaning to you. It doesn't mean that the lyrics aren't really stupid. And it also doesn't mean that you're not really stupid. And that's why you think that these things are really super deep and super personal. I didn't get any of that stuff from this. So listening to them talk about it, it was very disjointed. See, that's funny you mention that because my overarching take, even though I was I was super snarky and calling them talentless pieces of shit, which, you know, is holistically accurate. But it's a tale of two records. The vocals to me seem remarkably lazy, both in writing and delivery. Whereas the the instrumentation 
While not exactly revolutionary, is much more palatable. If this was just a an instrumental album, I'm not saying I would like it, but if it was playing at a hookah bar or something, I'd be okay with it. I wouldn't. It wouldn't bump me. Well, so there is actually there's an interesting story about how they got started as a band and how they got this album made originally. So Huey gets out of the Marines. He's back in civilian life. He's a civvy. A Jody, as they might have been called at some point. And, uh, you know, he needs a job. So he gets a job working as a barback along with Fast, who I'm just going to refer to him as Fast because in all the interviews I saw, they just referred to this guy as Fast. And I was like, all right, I'm going to call you Brian or I can call you Fast. I'm calling you Fast. Anyway, so Huey and Fast, they get jobs as barbacks at a popular club called the Limelight which on the New York club scene was, you know, a pretty happening place. And so he kind of becomes like a scenester. He's very always like well-dressed and he's always at the club. He's always sort of getting in the mix. And he's seeing all these acts come through, like national acts are coming through on the weekends and stuff like that. And he's like, man, you know, if I want to make some money and if I want to get laid, we got to start a band. Like that's the way to do it. And so the club owner basically is kind of a genius and he realizes, wait a second, I'm already paying you to be a bar back. So how about I'll just have you guys get up and play like on your shift and then I don't have to pay anybody to actually come and entertain. I'm paying like bar back prices to have somebody come and entertain the crowd for a little bit. So they would get these opportunities to play sets at the limelight, which was kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big club and it got them some notice and it got them uh, some recognition on the scene. And then They've been playing this club for a while. They create a demo, and that gets over to EMI Records, and that demo is Come Find Yourself, sort of. Because as the story goes, they get this demo over to EMI, and EMI loves it. And they're like, we want to release this record. They sign the band. And then EMI's like, wait, sounds like you used some samples on this, didn't you? And like, oh, yeah, totally. So they give them the list of the samples that they used, and it's like The Doors. Cream, Phil Collins, Jimi Hendrix. And the record company's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is going to cost like $12 million to clear all these fucking songs. What are you talking about? And apparently after like six months of back and forth, the record company just says you have to go back in and re-record all the samples on your own. So that's why, you know, Fast Leaster gets a whole bunch of credits on the album for playing all these various instruments because he was originally the guy who put all the samples together. But then they basically, they call up this guy, Tim Latham, who is a legendary engineer. He's the guy who has worked with Psychedelic Furs, Arrested Development, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, Britney Spears, Lou Reed, all these guys. He's a, he's a top-notch engineer and he basically dissects the album track by track picks it all apart and isolates the different samples that they have to then record and gives them like a hit list. He's like, go back through and you have to re-record all this stuff. You have to do this harmonica here. You have to do this guitar here. You have to do this bass here, trumpet here, stuff like that. Apparently they're only able to get through like 60% of the list. And so the other stuff they just cut out and we're like, ah, fuck it. We know we don't even need those parts anymore. Wait, wait, I have a question. Is that, is that a way to get around sample law? Just by, cause I did, I do remember that we heard that Beck, during Odelay did a little bit of that early he what the way they put it with him and the dust brothers was they were referencing some old records as opposed to paying for the samples yes i think they did pay for them they they paid for some but i'm mm. saying they there were some things where they mentioned they they recorded the the takes but they were 
references to old records. So they, so they did a mix of a bunch of different things on that record. But is that like effectively a hack to get around paying? Well, I think it's effectively a hack to get around paying if you're talking about a small enough snippet that you can't say, oh, this is like so materially similar to this. Like if you took Satisfaction and just recorded that, that would be enough. But if you take like three seconds of a guitar bend or something like that, then it's like, well, that that could be really anything. You know, you you can't own yeah, like the drums uh, fill from coming in the air tonight. You know, you just can't put that over every part of your song. You can't put that over every part of your song. But if you if you're like, oh, I pulled the the snare drum sound from that song and I put it in my song. If you just directly lifted that file, you got to pay for it. But if you just then say, okay, well, how about I just record a snare drum that sounds almost exactly the same as that, and I put that in instead, you don't have to pay for that. It must lead to interesting conversations. I imagine these major labels have had to navigate these waters for a long time and have somebody on staff. Again, on the Beck Odelay episode, I believe we talked about someone whose job it was to price and negotiate what it was to pay for samples. But I imagine there's also legal counsel to say that is too many notes or that's too close. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that the record company thought that this was going to do anything. (laughs) <laughs> after all was said and done, because apparently after they got the they got they listened to the demo and they really liked the demo, and then they heard the recreated version of it, which is what this album actually was, the one that they actually released, and they didn't like it at all, and they were kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that. You know, record execs aren't right all the time, but I feel like I'm with them on this one. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. So you know, basically they re-record all the tracks. The record company is like, eh, I guess we'll release it basically, and it gets released February 20th of 1996. Now, we're going to do our favorite segment here on 1001 Album Complaints, which is Come Find Yourself by the Numbers. First of all, we're going to talk about the number 12. That is in reference to the 12-hour recording sample session where apparently they were all stoned out of their fucking mind that created the first demo that was Come Find Yourself that they then had to go and rework and release. But basically, it all came out of one 12-hour stoned-out recording session. I can absolutely tell that, number one, all of the lyrics to these songs were written while they were totally stoned. And number two, they were not given a second version, and they were all done in one day. (laughs) The next number that we are going to reference is the number five, which is the highest chart position that this album received anywhere. And it was on the Scottish charts. Apparently, these guys were big in the United Kingdom. For some reason... Everybody in the United Kingdom really liked them. There's footage of them playing that song Scooby Snacks in front of like 100,000 fucking people at some big ass festival and people are going nuts. I don't understand it. I guess it just goes to show that, you know, not all British people are smart. Uh, You know, we think the (laughs) accent makes you smart, but I don't know. Don't know. I read that too and I thought thought maybe it was that real hip hop was still on its way over to Britain on a steamer ship or something like they hadn't actually heard Tribe Called Quest or Dr. Dre or anything good yet. Maybe. I don't know. They were too busy being mired in the, you know, bullshit electronica. How far removed from um, come play my game, guys? What are the prodigy prodigy? The prodigy. Yes. Can't be that far removed from the prodigy, right? 
I think I, like 98 maybe yeah something like that it's just weird it's like the brits gave us like the stones and the beatles and we give them fun loving criminals i mean i guess it's kind of <laughs> good, i guess it's like a good trade you know oh yeah <laughs> totally fair yeah. yeah uh so then we talk about the number two which is the number of Quentin Tarantino movies shamelessly plugged to capitalize on his popularity post-Pulp Fiction. The song Scooby Snacks has technically three Tarantino drops in it, two from Reservoir Dogs, one from Pulp Fiction, which is one million percent, and they've even kind of admitted this, one million percent why they got signed, because that drop was in the song, and they were like, oh, nobody's done this before, that's really cool, we should sign these guys to a record. And why that song was popular. At the time, I guess people thought it was edgy or something. See, that makes me angry, but it also resonates and makes sense. And I know we're going to get to it when we talk about this specific song. But it was just I was just thinking about the fact you mentioned that the record company, after hearing the final product, wasn't super impressed, and but ultimately said, hey, let's go ahead and release it. But then it just occurred to me that the distance from you agreeing to sign a band and then paying for them to record, now you got sunken costs. So now you kind of... You might as well release the record at that point, even if it's a piece of shit in most cases, right? Yeah. But you do hear about records getting buried. They're just like, yeah, we're not going to fucking promote this. We're not going to do anything. We're not going to make music videos. True. True. They don't have to promote it. You're right. That's yeah. that's where they have the power. Yep. And then the last number we're going to talk about is 37, which is the percentage of royalties that they had to give away on their biggest hit by a million miles, Scooby <laughs> Snacks, to Quentin Tarantino, along with a songwriting credit. And I got to tell you, I think he actually deserves more than 37%. That's awesome. I read that too, and that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I wrote ha 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 ha. Yep. I was, yeah, I was literally LOLing at that one. There goes all your fucking money to an already millionaire. Ugh. Because before I read that, I was thinking, man, if I was Tarantino, I'd be real. I thought he would have been a little more careful about how his material would be used. He seems like an artist with a capital A and you know what I mean? He just doesn't seem like he would give those rights up willy nilly. And then I and then I read that. He also seems like an asshole with a capital A. By totally. The way, so, but yeah. good. But good on him. Like, that was a yeah. totally great call for him to negotiate that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just mailbox money for him. He's probably, you know, he's probably made a couple of bucks off of the amount of times I had to listen to this piece of shit album this yeah. week. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All righty. So that's our By the Numbers. Now we're going to move on into our general impressions. And I want to hear from you, Rob. How was your week? What was your general impression of this album? Well, look, I, I kind of said it. I mean, it was pretty bad. But when I first put the record on, probably right after we recorded last week. The first 30 seconds, I got really frightened. It had a strong Kid Rock vibe to it. And I thought I was really in for a roller coaster of shit. To be honest, it it beat out that low expectation, but it still was pretty painful, mostly on a lyrical level. Like I said, I think some of the grooves and the instrumentation and even some of the little horn lines, although a lot of them are reworked samples effectively, I'm sure we're going to learn... That part wasn't that bad, and when there was no vocalization going on, a lot of the songs, I, I didn't mind so much, but the the lyrics and the lyrical delivery, the rapping style, it just felt like it was from a bygone era of hip-hop. It's not. It's embarrassing. Marty, what was your general impression of the album? Yeah, my, my general impression is that, you know, th- th- these aren't serious people. They're not, they're not serious musicians. <laughs> Sometimes things in life can happen, and these guys had something happen to them. They're very, very fortunate because they didn't 
probably didn't deserve. Well, I think they absolutely didn't deserve the fame that they've gotten. Agree with Rob. Lyrics are, I mean, and, and Tom, lyrics are embarrassing. You know, one, one of the guys in some of the songs puts on this like gruff kind of like affectation on his voice and makes him sound like he's been like smoking for 50 years. You know, their, their rhyming strategy is like, hey, what rhymes with man? Man, plan, scam, damn, flam. And then they just put all those in, in a song and then move on to the next three-letter word. <laughs> right, right. And it's funny, that they're, yeah. it's funny that the album's called Come Find Yourself because these guys don't seem to know themselves. And that's it. Well, maybe they do know themselves and they know that they're a bunch of fucking jokers <laughs> right. who were just trying to get laid and make a little bit of money. I, I guess. I gotta tell you, the interviews that I saw with uh, Huey, the lead singer, like he at one point was just like... You got to understand, for somebody like me, my horizon was so close to the ground. Like, I would never thought I was going to leave the country, let alone, like, tour the world and make a bunch of money playing music. Like, I thought I was going to be one of those guys who, like, never gets, like, five hours outside of New York in his entire life. And so I just feel really lucky and I feel really happy and I feel really blessed. And it's like, okay, good on you for that. That's just some self-awareness. I'll back that up because I did watch an interview clip or two with him as well and... I did it at the end of the week, you know, sort of today, and it made me feel a little bit bad about all the negative thoughts I had expressed in my mind and on the page, because he does seem like a pretty down-to-earth dude. Yeah, I mean, there is a... (laughs) We'll talk about it later. There's a line from an interview particularly that I'm just like, I don't think you either know the English language very well, or maybe you just are completely off base on what this what this word means. But yeah, like my general impression, I would like literally the first time I listened to this album, I wrote down, this is music for dudes that call spaghetti sauce gravy. Um, <laughs> and, number, and like absolutely a direct line to Kid Rock. 1996, this shit comes out. And talk about a little bit galling. We're going to get into the the opening track again a little bit. But the opening lines are like, one, two, three, and I come with the redneck style. You were born and raised in the least redneck place in the fucking United States. Like, it does not get less redneck than New York fucking city. You're (laughs) like, I'm from the fucking Bronx. And you're trying to say that you're a redneck? Come on, man. But that, I guarantee you, Chris, uh, Kid Rock heard this song and was like, hmm, I think there's something there. How about like country hip hop? I bet you it's this like through line of hip hop came out and it was good and it was raw and it was fucking in your face and it was fucking aggressive and it was really black. And then House of Pain came out in like 92, I think. And they were like, oh, wait a second. Like you can have... You don't have to completely vanilla ice it. You don't have to take all the shit out of it. You can have basically this exact same message and just have white guys deliver it or the exact same attitude and have white guys deliver it. And millions of white teenagers will buy it. And I think that there is a direct line to these guys of just like house of pain. Let's take the raw rap that was too black for the suburbs and just have white guys deliver it. Okay, great. These guys are like, we can do the same thing. And then they throw in a little bit of country and it's like, oh, basically it's rap music for people who are scared of black people. And that's exactly what Kid Rock tried to do a couple of years later. And again, God damn it, they didn't make a shitload of money off of it, but I fucking hate it. But again, you grew up in New York. How is this your perspective? You're right. It, it rides this line between this pseudo goomba New York Italian American type perspective that you see expressed in a thousand movies already and you're bored to death. It might as well be, what was the record that Joe Pesci cut as the My Cousin Vinny? 
character. Oh, God, yeah. Vincent Gambino, that was this guy? It's practically that mixed with what what you're saying, which is this very, this almost like rednecky acoustic guitar sampling beer drinking thing, you know? And that just, yeah. I don't know, those two vibes just don't seem to mash up very well. And, you know, what's funny is that Huey Morgan, the lead singer, is Puerto Rican and Irish. He's not even Italian, but he totally comes across like super goomba. You're right. Wannabe gangster shit, which they get really deep into on a couple of songs on this album. And it's honestly kind of fucking pathetic, like all the dick riding that they're doing of these like New York mafiosos. It's like, these guys hate you. What the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think... I think certain I think certain styles of music shouldn't be smashed together like a lot of people have attempted to do over over time. Blues, country, folk, rap, you know, kind of I still think those styles mesh here. And not saying they can't. I think any number of influences or styles of music can be combined, but not so uh, you know, forcefully like this stuff. You know, I got to say, if you listen to a lot of modern country right now, it sounds very, not like this, but it sounds, it's very hip hop influenced. It's a lot less like, there's a lot of less singing oriented and kind of more like rhythmically talking kind of shit going on like that. And it's terrible. It's not good at all. I don't like it. And I think it was actually Steve Earle who was talking about modern country, and he's like, if I want to listen to rap, I'll just listen to fucking rap. Why would I... I want to listen to country. Why the fuck would I listen to a dude trying to do a half country, half rap thing? Is that... You think that's coming off of the success of Old Town Road, or was Old Town Road a culmination of that? I think Old Town Road was a culmination of that, but after that, there's been a million pretenders. Yeah. As there always is, and these guys, I think, uh, you know, are the epitome of fucking pretenders. You know, they didn't sell a ton of albums with this. In terms of verified sales, I can only verify that they sold like 350,000 albums, which is really not a lot. Mostly this week, I was just confused as to why this was on the list. You could see it as a, a stop on the road of like this really shit thread of music that I hate, but it doesn't seem essential. It doesn't seem like it moved the yeah. ball forward. I had the same question and I was hoping you were going to be able to shed some light on it. Other than the fact that the list is, and I think we've mentioned this before, it's very UK focused It's written by a British person and by British editors compiled. And so I think there is a weird UK bias because you said they were big in the UK. That means they really weren't big. In the U.S., probably most of their album sales were over there, and I think they were playing like 20-year anniversary shows where they played this full album to like sold-out crowds in the U.K. So apparently, it's important to somebody. But yeah, I'm gonna need a lot of convincing that it belongs in the musical canon. Yeah, I feel like U.S. listeners hear this and they're like, "Oh, this is all fake. This is all bullshit." Like, clearly, these guys aren't even real fucking New York Goombas, even, and right. clearly not real rappers, and they're clearly not real rednecks. Like, I don't, I don't get it. It's all fake to me. Anyway, let's dive into the individual tracks here. We're just going to, you know what? We've spent enough time on this band. We've spent enough time on this album. Let's start talking about individual tracks. We're going to revisit the opening track, Fun, Love, and Criminal. Here's a little bit more of that song, and I, I, I promise you we will play a different section of the song, even if it doesn't sound like we are. Stick them up, it's the fun, love, and criminal. Stick them up, it's the fun, love, and criminal. 
Cause everybody knows that birds don't fly. All right. You know what? I'll, I'll start this off. I don't hate this song as much as I should. I'm not saying I like the song, but I don't hate it as much as I should. It's got a rhythmic element to it that is, I think, well-constructed. I think it's well-produced. Yeah, this is one of the ones where the music definitely worked for me. I think the hook is not bad as a theme song. It's got, it strikes a good balanced tone. I like the horn line that comes in in the chorus. And I don't know if this is the, I don't know which came first, this song or their name, but it's a, it's not such a bad turn of phrase to write a song around or to name a band about. So lyrics are still embarrassing for the most part, but like, you know, the hook itself, yeah, not so bad. This song did not come up before their name because I just saw some old footage of them playing in like Nowhere's Fuckingville and they were introduced as the fun loving criminals where, you know, they were basically like joking about like, oh, they're playing this to, pl- to pay off their bar tab or something like that. So they were totally nobodies, hadn't released a an album at this point. So I got to guess that this is, you know, does not predate the their 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 name as a band. And you're right, you know, it's marketing. I remember this song from back in the day. Yeah, well, they do They do men- mention Peter Gayton. I didn't connect this to the biography that you were talking about earlier where they were worked at the Limelight. But that guy was the owner of the Limelight and other New York clubs. Oh, okay. They, I mean, they name drop a lot of yeah. people in these songs, right? I looked. Up, I, had, I just looked up. I was like, "Who's who's John Steed? Who's Peter? You know, who, the, who is John like, Steed? Oh. He's like some like James Bond type uh, British. I think a special agent type character. Smart like John Steed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It seems very New Yorky referential, right? Because at one point he says like, "I'll chop you up like I was Jimmy Coogan or something like that." Coonan, he was the guy who ran the Irish mob in New York in the 70s and 80s or something like that. Mm. Which, like, who the fuck would know that? Unless, again, unless you go and look it up. Right, right. My, one of my favorites was when he rhymed Franks and Knishes with best wishes. Now, this let's let's talk about this for a second. <laughs> See, I, I rob banks. I pull pranks. Sometimes I eat Franks and Knishes. Best wishes. I'm vicious. Marty, you hit the nail on the fucking head where he's just like, how many rhyme, words rhyme with vicious? I want to say the word vicious. How many words rhyme with vicious? And he throws out all the words. And he says, well, I was fucking use them all. How about we just use them all? He was trying to get to wish it, to vicious. <laughs> and he probably wrote knishes first. And he's like, oh, shit. Wishes also rhymes with vicious. You know, we'll just use them both. We'll just use them both. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I can make it work. Oh, God. And oh, so the horn line in this song, which I actually kind of like, is apparently just uh, revel, revelly. That they just took the reveille and they took a couple of the notes from that and just like messed with the timing on it. But ah. I thought the horn line was actually pretty cool and tasteful, and it, it was very additive. So that's the most interesting thing they've done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you mean the military thing? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Not to the, I th- what I played was what I said was taps there for a second, but reveille is the wake up call uh, that they do in the reveille. It's like the bugle wake up call. So yeah, it's just okay. Reveille, but they they slowed it down, and they're like, ah, that's just public domain. We don't have to worry about paying for that. It's additive, and I do think that this song has an additive quality, where things kind of come in that give it a little bit of build and a little bit of feel. Overall, like, I was nodding my head to this song. Honestly, if I was given the chance to like just rewrite everything but the hook line of this song with much better lyrics in the verse, this could be a good song. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I think it was one of the stronger instrumental efforts, but the lyrics fucked it up. But what I was trying to say earlier was that I think the tone of the instrumentation has like a playful, bouncy quality, which suits their band and the hook line effectively. Whereas I later on in the record, I thought there was a weird mismatch of of vibes coming from either the instrumentation and trying to match that with what they were saying in the lyrics. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. They try to go a little bit more traditional hip-hop and less fun party hip-hop, and they just don't come off as hard. You know, when you have rhymes like, I'll hit you with an egg on a hot summer night, as the big diss line in this, it's like, come on, the Beastie Boys pull it off because you can tell that they're joking and they don't <laughs> think that this is actually cool or funny. You do not pull it off. They take themselves too seriously, despite... The well-known fact that apparently fat birds don't fly, as they say in this. I never take myself too seriously because everybody knows fat birds don't fly. These lyrics fucking suck. God. And I could tell, again, just like you're super fucking high and you're super fucking dumb and you just think that, man, this is going to blow somebody's goddamn mind. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is, Is fat birds don't fly a lyric in one of these songs? It absolutely is. It's in oh. this song, particularly. I, oh, I love yeah. that lyric. I, I somehow missed yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's kind of. I think it's. <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, and Marty, Marty's a fan. I We've got a convert I, already. Yeah, I found <laughs> yeah. the one thing I like from their whole catalog. <laughs> well, let's move on to the biggest hit in their catalog by a million fucking miles. This is the song Scooby Snacks. Okay, Scooby Snacks. I was trying to figure out what they are. Best I could find is it means value. Yes, it is value. So the idea is that these guys are going around on Valium robbing banks. Yes. And then it has this like Quentin Tarantino thing going on. And remind me, is is that one of the things in from one of his movies where people take Valium and they rob banks? No. Okay. No. Okay. Okay. No. Okay. I had it in my head that maybe there's some, something in one of those movies where people take Valium and rob banks. But yeah. Okay, cool. That's uh, terrible rhyming, but I guess the Scooby Snacks part is catchy, and it's it's undeniably catchy. And I under and I and it didn't remember anything about this band before listening to this song. But when I heard this song, a memory came to me, which is hearing this song played at least once a day on like you know one hundred six point one or Q one hundred two or one of those Philadelphia radio stations. It's catchy. Yeah. So in an interview, Huey said. You got to realize, Scooby Snacks is about a Valium-induced bank robbery. It's pretty subversive. I was like, no, no it's not. It's <laughs> not subversive at all. Do you understand what that word means? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's stupid. So it's funny that you say this is such a big hit, and I totally believe it, but I swear I have no recollection of ever having heard this song before this week. But I will say this. So props to the title. like Just kind of like what Marty said. Props to the title and the hook. I get why it's a hit. It sounds very 90s. It's catchy. It's a cool little... 
I assume everyone in the audience knows it's a reference also to Scooby Doo, which was a popular cartoon for yeah, everyone <laughs> I knows hope that, so. Right? And I hope so, but it's not super clear. I was going to say that to me this is another place where about half the instrumentation worked really well. The bass line when it first comes in is cool and kind of surfy. And the other thing that has a surfy vibe is that super reverby guitar that comes in, I think, in the second verse. Maybe we can timestamp like one minute in ish. Baby, baby, baby. Is there some Colin McChee love thing happening here, baby, or what? By that time, fast happening with the night, said it's time to blow, you know. So out the door we go back to the rock. Both of those things to me connected it, in my mind anyway, to using the Pulp Fiction sample. Because if you recall, the Pulp Fiction soundtrack was full of all those surf songs. So to me, that like at least there was some symmetry there. And both the Pulp Fiction sample and the Reservoir Dogs sample, to a certain extent, reference robberies, right? Because they're referencing the scene in Pulp Fiction where they rob the cafe. And Reservoir Dogs is about the aftermath of a robbery, uh, generally. Now, that said... Neither one of those were bank robberies, by the way. <laughs> true, true. My main complaint, though, is that the main rhythm guitar, when it drops in, completely disrupts the vibe that has been established by the bass and the surfy guitar thing. It's like so 90s and in your face and, I don't know, power punk. It just, it really like pulled me out of it instrumentally. So that that specific production decision really bothered me. My first note on this is this song is so fucking boring. And... I will agree that that hook line, uh, the running around, robbing banks, all whacked off of Scooby Snacks. The first time I hear it, I'm like, that's cool. And then by the 15th time I'm hearing it at the end of the song, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I get it. You had this line and you had Tarantino samples and that's it. And you threw a shit song together with it with your right. Complete mismatch of energy on the instrumentation. That da that's it's so jarring it's so not smooth and the rest of the song is like very smooth but his lyrics in this are fucking terrible (laughs) they're so bad they don't even tell a good story and like see i hurt my lower lumbar you know we'll never get far driving around in a stolen police car it's the same problem where he was like i need something to rhyme with police car how about lumbar and far? And you're like, well, yeah, yeah, they rhyme. I can't tell you they don't rhyme, <laughs> but it's not good. What about this rhyme for the ages? This slant rhyme. This guy's a modern day Emily Dickinson. On the way to the yacht, we almost got caught. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. I feel like I want to pull up the lyrics of this song right now because there's just so many of them we can fucking pull apart. <laughs> no, I just did. No, here he's got one. They're at Dunkin' yeah, that- Donuts adjacent from the Fromans. Yeah, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. It's what like neighborhood hell? directions. <laughs> oh, yeah, seriously. But the end of the song is just like, they gave chase, but my man Steve's an ace. And we lost those brothers with haste. We cast it off, and along we went, off to Bermuda to an island resort we rented. What the fuck? That's like the end of the song. Rented and went. Don't rhyme, okay? They don't rhyme. I'm sorry. You can't make that work. And it's all delivered with this, and then we did 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 this. It's like, come on, man. This, you know, you you called him a down market house of pain, but it really is a sad redheaded stepchild of the beastie boys too this is definitely them trying to recreate a paul revere type song and just i think failing yeah yeah i think a lot of these songs are failures and if we're being honest 
I think that uh, we've already talked about the two best songs on the album. So Agreed. <laughs> yes. We're going to move on to the next song that we're going to talk about on our focus list here. King of New York. He had the boots and he bought the suits and the boys didn't like him to tell you the truth. Yeah, he had JG on his pinky ring and he lied about some dude with some time up a sing Flip one fire summer afternoon. Told his brother Paulie summer had to be done soon. He took Paulie and a couple of boys and decked the Coupe de Ville to Illinois. All I can say about this song is it has a somewhat respectable groove. My problem is that it's so one note, though. Oh, it's the just groove repetitive. Is fine, but it goes on way too long. It's two chords for the entire thing, and even the horn, when the horn line kicks in in the chorus, it's it's one note. Yeah. So it's so monotonous. Now, yeah. that works for a song where you are trying to highlight high-level lyricism. That's why that works for a lot of that intricately rhyming hip-hop shit. You don't want a bunch of stuff to get in the way. You want lyrics out front so you can, number one, hear the meaning, number two, hear all the different intra-line rhymings and the cadence changes and stuff like that. Not for this. This is just a guy, he sounds like he's fucking reading a fucking ransom letter with a gun to his head and a fucking newspaper <laughs> with today's date behind it. Like, it's not delivered in a, yeah. any kind of, like, compelling I, way. I just wrote that it was so lazy. Lottie Dottie free John Gotti is the laziest oh, hook. Not, you know, first of all, that was absolutely the laziest chorus ever. But you have to complete it. Lottie Dottie free John Gotti. Lottie Dottie. Lottie. <laughs> that's the, that's the right. full phrase. You right. right. write a second right. line. And also, Snoop Dogg already took fucking Lottie Dottie. We likes to potty. That's what I was going to ask. Was this, a- this was after that song, right? It's fucking after yeah. that. It's like yeah. many you can't say years Lottie Dottie after, after that. You know, after Snoop Dogg. No. You can't, no one can say it. It's done. It's in the. It's, the, it's, the song it's, is called Lottie Dottie. <laughs> like, it's fucking. It's taken. Entirely taken. Ugh. If, you're right, and that's and Snoop's is such a much better rhyme too. Lottie oh yeah, Dottie. the free John Gotti. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, what yeah. is it? Lottie Dottie, we likes to party. We don't make trouble. We don't bother nobody. That's that's great. Yeah. That's that's yeah, a that's yeah, great. It's great. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. That's lyricism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, question. I don't know. I couldn't get information on who was actually on this song. But did they get Send Dog from Cypress Hill to sing backups on this? I don't think so. No. It's definitely it definitely sounds like that dude just shouting in the background. Fuck, I'm trying to think of a great line from Cypress Hill that he screams in the background. He just repeats yeah. whatever Be Real That's, says. It's funny that you say that, Rob, because like most most bands, they're part of some sort of scene. They have affiliations with other bands, with labels. There's some intermingling. You can't find any of that existing with this band. No sort of like line or connection between them and any other bands. It's very, very odd. Yeah, you're right. Like a tribe called Quest, they'd be like, oh, we're like hanging out with like diggable planets. We're hanging out with like the Jungle Brothers. You know, like these guys were just like, yeah, we we're just barbacks working out of an apartment and we put some Tarantino clips in a song and some dipshit from a record company was like, hey, we can make money off that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they were right. That's the worst and, and part. And they were fucking right. And also, listen, 
John Gotti was a piece of shit. And I don't understand this whole like, oh, John Gotti, like, what did they say? He said, besides musicians, we were also influenced by John Gotti. Growing up in New York in the late 80s with cars blowing up, it was kind of cool. That doesn't sound fucking cool at all. That's terrible. And John Gotti's a fucking asshole parasite who I believe killed his neighbor after his neighbor accidentally hit and killed his son with his car. Yeah, John Favara was the backyard neighbor of John Gotti. And apparently uh, he killed 12-year-old Frank Gotti by accident with his car and then disappeared and has never been seen again. (laughs) This is the guy that, yeah, free this guy. This guy sounds like he's fucking awesome. Uh, So there is a funny story about this where apparently, I'll read the whole quote here. This was a completely different song when it started. It had Steve Miller band samples in and it was really slow. (laughs) It all changed when we were opening for Corn. By that time, we'd sped up King of New York and made it more of a funk track. Their lead singer was going la-di-da-di, free John Gotti for his whole show. At first, we were pissed because he was ripping us off, but it made us think there might be something in this track after all. And listen, I'm not a huge fan of Corn, but I got to think that he was fucking with you. Oh, of course. By he's doing making fun that. of them. Yeah. He's like, look at these <laughs> <Yeah>. assholes. <laughs> yeah. This is a fucking ridiculously stupid fucking song. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good Lord. Let's move on to. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I actually thoroughly enjoyed listening to this song. <laughs> we have all the time in the world. Well, sadly, we don't have all the time in the world, and I've already wasted several hours listening to this piece of shit. Oh, yeah, it's funny God. that, you know, I gave this playlist a blind listen, and when this song came on, I was, like, taken back a little bit. I was like, oh, you know, this is a kind of nice-sounding song, only to realize that this was a song sung by Louis Armstrong, some sort of, like, what-a-wonderful-world money grab late in his career. And then it all made sense because, you know, this band can't do anything well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Hal David yeah. wrote this, uh, Burt Bacharach's old partner, and it was a Bond theme that Armstrong recorded super late in his life. So actually, the vocal, I'm, sh- I'm sure we're about to talk about how terrible this vocal take is, but if you listen to Louis, he's definitely a shadow of his former self, because I think it was recorded in like the late 60s by Louis Armstrong, something like that. And so, obviously, he's an all-time great vocalist, but he was really old and really ill at this point. So if they're listening to that version, I sort of see how the vocal could come out so, so, so terrible. But this guy clearly cannot sing a lick. Apparently, they finished the album, and the record label said, you have to put a cover song on this album. There has to be a cover on this album. And I think it was like, we have to, there has to be at least one real written song in this album that we know is a real song, so we could like release it and have something to show for it. Yeah, I don't think that's a vote of confidence when the record company says you need to put somebody else's <laughs> yeah. song in your album. <laughs> what do they say? This, this track is Huey having to sing. It's not the best vocal performance in the world, 
but it makes sense as that's how it's gonna sound live so even they were like he sounds like shit but like what are you gonna do that was the you band know? that was the band saying that that right? was the band saying that yes that was fast yeah, exactly that was fast leaster saying that yeah, yeah. right i wrote that he sounded like he sounds like lou reed without the cool sunglasses <laughs> Oh, you know this guy had some cool guy sunglasses, though. <laughs> Absolutely the kind of guy that's got cool guy sunglasses. <laughs> oh, man. I was cracking up when I read that Like the record company was like, no, you must put a cover song on this album. I was like, if any record label comes to you and tells you that, you're like, ah, oh, fuck. Maybe uh, that Kula Shaker album had just come out and had Hush as a big hit on it, and they were like, ah, oh, fuck. All righty, we got to – maybe we can get some – some late 70s money from it. Or maybe there was some... The kids like Deep Purple. I'm sure they'll love late period <laughs> Louis Armstrong. Singing a maudlin Bond theme. Yes, that sounds great. <laughs> okay, last track that we are going to talk about on our focus list. We are flying through this Fun Loving Criminals album here. And thank God we are. Because we're going to come to our last song here. It's called Bear Hug. So, Marty, you made a reference to how the guy, like, put on an affectation. Apparently, he came into the studio and was, like, really fucking sick. Oh, And okay. they were like, oh, now's the time we got to record Bear Hug, because that's when you got to sound hard. Oh, that makes more <laughs> sense now. Yeah, that, that was, that was yeah. my thought about this song, is his weird, like, smoker's voice. He was sick. Wow. Yeah, he was sick. I wrote that he, it sounded like he had just listened to Onyx sing slam oh my God. Right before he went into yeah. the booth <laughs> jesus christ this guy is not heavyweight and <laughs> definitely not undisputed listen it was hard to pick a low point but i would say this is the low point and i will cite this set of lyrics which do not belong anywhere in hip-hop if you can't live the lie let it die and if you can't live a life full of strife just say oops and jump through hoops and they repeat this <laughs> twice oh yeah that's like a hook oh yeah so the hook of we got the crazy crew, you think you come in, we say na na na, we got the block locked up. That's not a bad hook. Like treated differently by better lyricists. And I also think the production on this song is not bad. The harmonica part in there is like pretty good. It's like a little harmonica sample. It's not bad. I like the upright bass that they got going on, which I guess would have been an upright bass sample, but they re-recorded it. Like I think it's pretty well produced, but I don't buy this whole, like, they try to get Foxy, they try to rock me, they say they got the 40 cal Glock with the 30 round clip. It's like, you're not hard, man. You're not fucking scaring anybody here. Nobody believes you own guns and rob people and shit like that. Like, don't fucking try to pull that off. You're a fun-loving criminal. I'll give them a pretty quick production compliment since you mentioned that that bass is a re-recorded sample. Because one of the things I notice is it's not... How do I put it? It's like a clipped sample, which makes it sound more like it's actually a sample from an old record. Like the timbre of the instrument doesn't quite finish its phrase. And so to me, that is a an aesthetic decision that if they still made that, even though they re-recorded it, didn't necessarily have to. To me, that's interesting. I am going to go ahead and guess that when 
they got that list, like that like hit list of you have to hear the parts you have to re-record. I'm gonna guess that they probably did that in isolation. And they just had like a headphones on with like a don't don all bass line in it. And he's just trying to play exactly what that bass line is, what that sample was before. And probably not actually listening to the song and trying to fit it into the song. That'd be my guess. But I, I just think that makes me think of a certain kind of sample based production style. It made me think a little of Wu-Tang, maybe also the hook line made me think of a little bit of Wu-Tang too. Like that was if... Wu Tang were delivering that line. I would think it was sort of okay. Yeah, Tom. Do you have any? Do you have any uh, notes on kind of what kind of equipment they were using? So originally they had a six track DAT that they were um, that they had recorded on. So they recorded on a six track one of those digital audio tapes. And let's see, what do they have it all loaded up into? He had an Esonic EPS sixteen track workstation. Oh, which. Yeah. So it's just like a that's just like a sample firer basically, right? Like you just fire off samples with that. You get you load up 16 samples in it and you can kind of fire them off. This is like, you know, mid 90s. They don't have a whole lot of money, so they're just kind of using what they got. I mean, it's still probably pretty nice equipment. Not necessarily like the the highest of the highest top end. Although, frankly, I don't fucking know a whole lot about this stuff, so I'm sure there's somebody out there that knows more, and you can feel free to write us and tell us that we're wrong. 1001 album complaints at gmail.com. It's, it's, it's funny because I just, I just Googled it, and it looks like Wu-Tang also used the Ensonic sampler. <laughs> so Rob kind of oh. uh, Rob kind of called it. <laughs> Alrighty, yeah, I get it. So this this song... This is what caused me to write Apartment of Discomfort. Like, this is totally, you know, House of Pain style of like, I'm so tough and I'm so gritty and I'm blah, 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 blah. But there's just no, uh, there's no truth behind it. And like, even if you don't like hip hop, I don't like a lot of modern hip hop because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of truth behind what they're talking about, especially this era of hip hop. It seemed like they were pretty much writing about like, real life shit and that's what made it powerful and these guys don't seem like they're writing about real life shit it seems like they're they saw people writing about real life shit and they're like i can make some money copying that without any of the realism behind it and i find it a little bit fucking galling honestly right i I do appreciate that they uh shout out along what you're talking about they the guy you know kills someone and then goes and eats a a chicken parm sandwich i can't see (laughs) the words chicken parm written down on paper without immediately craving one so I think I know what my dinner plans are for tonight. <laughs> that is fucking true, actually. I was definitely like, huh, chicken parm sandwich. I got one for lunch this week, actually. Let's <laughs> listen to this shit so much. Yeah. <laughs> Anything left to say on this? Or have these guys said it all? Did they just leave it all out on the tape for us? And there's nothing more that we can say about it. Uh, it's pretty fucking bad. But it is thankfully short. It is under an hour long, which in the CD era good for them they didn't make me suffer for longer than than necessary this could have been a fucking 67 minute long album in 1996 so let's get to the voting i know everybody is as curious as i am what their votes are gonna be i'm gonna throw it around the room first i'm going to rob rob what is your vote yay nay must listen before you die you know when scholars look back on this period of fruitful hip-hop innovation they will agree that this album is piece of shit and it's completely inessential so it's a no for me barty how about you not only does this album not belong on the list it makes me question the list you know it's funny my vote was going to be fuck you dimery how dare you make me listen to this we've talked about this before this is a musical fucking dead end there is no 
This doesn't lead anywhere fruitful or important. It's uh, it's not necessarily a dead end, but it's like that like shitty rest stop that just has bathrooms and not even any like a maybe one shitty vending machine or something like that on the highway of music. It's got nothing to offer you. Keep on fucking driving. If you really are a big fan of House of Pain and you're a really big fan of Kid Rock, you still don't need to listen to this fucking album because it doesn't improve on it. It doesn't add to it. It's not making the canon better. As much as I dislike Kid Rock, it's, his material is better. It is than better this. than this, yes. I, and that is saying a lot because that Kid Rock album is fucking terrible. <laughs> but this is an album of like all lowlights of the Kid Rock album, just repeated ad nauseum. Right. And then one song that's okay because it has a Tarantino sample and that's kind of okay. And I actually, I actually kind of like that first song, Fun Loving Criminal. I think that that's a good song. And that, that if that was just the only thing that they ever put out, I would respect them so much more than having to listen to the rest of this shit. There you have it. Oh, for three. No surprises here. I think we all saw that one coming. Sorry, Fun Loving Criminals. I guess you'll have to go back to playing packed fucking 20 year anniversary shows in the fucking uk for some goddamn reason but you did not make the list we will not be recommending that people listen to this album before they die this album a couple of times this me this week made me yearn for that sweet embrace of death (laughs) before we get on to Firing up that old Albinator and finding out what we're going to listen to next week. I am going to throw it over to Rob, who I believe has some mailbag missives that he would like to read to us. Thanks so much, Tom. Yeah, we're a little behind on our mailbag, if I'm being honest with you. But a lot of the missives have been coming fast and furious. So these reference some episodes uh, that we recently did. One... We've been getting some feedback about the drinking game we put out there, so I think we're going to have to continue to add to that. Dominic writes, I'm listening to Led Zeppelin 2, episode 100, where we introduced the 1001 album complaints drinking game. And Dominic says, I'm just about to hear the rules for your drinking game, but I've paused the episode to write out my own rules first, because this is something I've definitely thought of before. He goes on to give us a list. Anytime Tom says, this song sucks... You get fucking alcohol poisoning drinking every time I say <laughs> Anytime we make an Eric Crapton reference, good call. Good call. We didn't we didn't hit that one. Anytime Phil free associates a bunch of random unrelated bands to compare a song and it makes no sense. It's kind of a band stereo lab Dr. Dre thing. Oh Jesus Christ, again. Just fucking go to the hospital. <laughs> this guy has our number. This guy has he clearly has our number. Anytime Adam says pitchy or goat vibrato. I feel like this guy might know us better than we know ourselves. (laughs) He did hit on one that we hit on, which was arguments about using a pick while playing bass. And he mentioned one of our favorite phrases, which is freak out the squares. He goes on to say, still enjoying the show after 100 episodes. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Dominic. We're going to compile this. We're going to get keep adding to that drinking game. Please let us know if you hear anything else that you think should be involved in that. Maybe we'll we'll publish an official version soon. Next, I wanted to follow up on an episode that, I'll admit, I was surprised, got several emails, which was the Electric Prunes. Oh, God. Chris from Sweden, I'm inferring he's from Sweden, writes, Hi, nice podcast. He's very nice, so he's probably Scandinavian. I'm a huge Prunes fan, so this was a fun listen. We found him. The guy. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I'm already (laughs) laughing. 
I'm already laughing. I can really recommend their live album from 1967 in Stockholm, Sweden. It's a must listen. One of the finest live albums from that era. 60s psych, garage, underground, and underground nerds like myself consider their second studio album, which is actually entitled Underground, as their best, though. And then we got one. I have another one I want to read about the prunes because I'm telling you, prunes feedback. Who knew the prunes had such a following to this day? So fan BT from Minnesota writes, one thing you didn't note on your Electric Prunes episode is that the song I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night was track one on something called the Nuggets compilation from 1972. This person goes on to say, that compilation curated by Lenny Kay is probably the single most important compilation record of all time and only missed out being on the 1001 albums list because Diamond Ray didn't include any compilations. It's actually incredibly influential in terms of solidifying a canon of garage proto-punk from the 60s, especially since Lenny Kay later became the guitarist for Patti Smith. I thought that was interesting, and I actually haven't listened to the... I found a version of Nuggets on Spotify, and I'm interested to look into that. She thinks the Electric Prunes in some way survived uh, through through the work of this compilation, which is kind of an interesting thought. That's cool. Yeah, that's really insightful. Yeah. Always love... Love, love, love to hear people who know more about the bands writing in and uh, giving us more more context and more information. There's only so much that we can learn in a week, and then we got to move on to the next band. And so we can't even revisit a lot of this stuff and go back and try to figure out where we missed some things. So please continue to write in 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Give us any contacts we missed. Tell us you like what we're doing. Tell us you think that we're off base. You know, we admit it. We're just giving our first takes on this album. All we have is one week to get used to it. And if you've been listening to it for years, maybe there's something you know that we don't. Always love to hear from everyone. Now, let's get ready for our homework assignment for next week. I have the Albinator. It's been chilling in the corner. It's all Scooby snacked out. And I got to slap it and throw some (laughs) coffee down his gullet to get it going. Let's spin that wheel and find out what the next record will be. Drum roll, please. Next week, we will be listening to... The band is Susie and the Banshees, and the album is Juju. I have heard this album before, and I do not like it. (laughs) Maybe I've only listened to it casually. Maybe deep dives will give me something that I can uh, really sink my teeth into. But goddamn, I have not been a fan of what I've heard so far. Well, she's considered a pioneer as a front woman, right? Sushi Sue. I don't know much about her, to be honest, either. So I'm excited to learn. Yeah, I think that she very much had that kind of like riot girl proto-punk thing going on and i'm sure that there's going to be a lot of very strong opinions as to why i'm wrong for not liking it but uh context bereft of context just listening to it coming up in a playlist i have not been a fan so far so super stoked for this coming week everybody yeah Susie and the banshees (laughs) juju um we will uh be back in your ear holes exactly one week from today but until then i have been tom I've been Marty. And I'm Rob. Boosh. Boosh.